Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kao and Josh Carter. Welcome, everyone, to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. I'm your co-host, Cynthia Kao. Josh is my other host. He is out for the week, but we've got a really great show. For those of you who are listening in for the first time, um, we have some awesome founders that we talk to about their business, their experience, and they have one more thing on their belt, which is service to our country. Today, we're talking to Dan Register from K9Cavalry.org. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me here. Appreciate it. Yeah, great to have you. So um, this is kind of cool because we can like gang up and, you know, beat up on Navy because we're Air Force vets. <laughs> we do it all Which, the time. In the I know. Josh is going to Josh is going to come back on me and go, what did you do without me? Which I, lo- I love to get into trouble. Uh, so tell what me, happened? Did he sleep in? Uh, he's got some family stuff, you know, like when you're trying to have kids at home and he suddenly had to go pick up one of his kids. So, <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm still going to go with sleeping in. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about you and how you got started in, in the service. Well, I suppose you probably get a lot of different kinds of answers to this question. Um, everyone always has their own reason for joining. Uh, I myself am a third generation Air Force veteran. Uh, my grandfather served, my father served, and I served as well. My time was during the Kosovo War. I spent most of my time as a boom operator flying on KC-135s, conducting mid-air refuelings uh, assigned to NATO during the Kosovo War. Wow. Um, that was my term. Um, but my reason for joining was, uh, you know, I was looking for adventure. I knew about the Air Force from when I was a kid. You know, my dad used to bring me to the base. We used to hang out on the C-130s. He was in a guard unit at the time. And um, it was always just kind of a part of my background. I knew all of his friends from the base as well. Um, That was a good indoctrination on uh, the mindset of a military person. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of what caused me to join it. It felt like it was uh, kind of inevitable in a way. So your grandfather, was he in during the time of the Army Air Corps before the Air Force became its own branch? Yes, ma'am, he was. Yeah, so that's World War II era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then my father served um, during the during the Vietnam time. He actually uh, was, um, like I said, assigned to a C one thirty unit mm-hmm. uh, out of Channel Islands, um, with a lot of history in other units before that. Um, he ended up uh, retiring as a uh, logistics uh, with a logistics badge. Okay, that's awesome. I have a. A spot and a, a, a fond spot for Vietnam vets in my heart because I think, you know, they're they're the folks that came home and didn't get that warm fuzzy reception as a lot of us did. And um, I was in during uh, 2008 to 2014, so it was during kind of the height of OIF OEF. And my first tour um, was uh, serving the Sudan 
um, civil war, which at that time, I don't know if you're familiar with the Darfur uh, genocide, but that's what I responded to. So I wasn't part of like the main operations until my deployment to Afghanistan in 2013. Um, and by then, I, I, as soon as I got back, I knew I was going through the med board process. Um, so tell me a bit about like what you joined at 18 or did you um, oh, yeah. go to right school? Out of high school? Okay. Right out of high school. I was uh, actually not even, I was like almost 18. My birthday was happening right before I joined and um, that uh, I think I spent my birthday in basic training now that I think about it. Boy, it was a long time ago. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was uh, right out of high school and uh, I went straight into boom operator training. You know, I went through basic training, uh, got, got all my certifications, got all my uh, you know, clearances and was assigned to, of all places, Grand Forks, North Dakota. Uh, oh, I've been there. <laughs> it is cold. <laughs> it is cold. Yeah. And, you know, of course, I, I was there during the uh, during the flood. Uh, oh, OK. Uh, 1996 when the Grand Forks flooded um, and we were part of the you know response to that emergency that happened. Um, it happened right as I was coming back from a deployment, if I recall. Um, but, yeah, I was assigned to the 319th air refueling wing, uh, the 911th air refueling squadron and mm -hmm. uh, have somewhere around 1500 hours in the plane. And uh, I, I've been to 22 countries with my deployments. I was all over the world. That's exciting. What was your What was your first uh, tour abroad? My first tour abroad was in Turkey. We were supporting the northern no-fly zone over Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Or sorry, over Iraq, not Saudi Arabia. We were assigned in Saudi Arabia. So Iraq had the northern and southern no-fly zone. Uh, we would orbit over the northern no-fly zone and refuel the aircraft that were um, enforcing that no-fly zone uh, against Saddam Hussein. What was your uh, experience? Had you gone? Had you had you traveled before, or this was your first stint? Yeah, I traveled personally. I, you know, I had been to Germany and back by the time uh, by the time I was uh, sixteen. Um, and you were an Air Force uh, brat, right? So, did you guys ever get stationed abroad as a family? No, no. I, I spent all my time in one place. Thank goodness. I think that was by decision. My dad didn't want to bring us around move us around quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I think he probably had a little bit of that when he was growing up with my grandfather, um, maybe more sympathetic to it. I don't know. I've had to ask him, but he, uh, uh, we stayed in one place. Um, I didn't have a lot of the bouncing around that you hear from other people that identify as military brats, um, where they're, you know, from one base to another, to another. And, you know, I sympathize with them. They have to make all new friends and learn new lifestyles and, being a dog trainer, I can tell you that's real difficult for uh, for kids to do, much less dogs to do, to be able to establish a routine and then have it completely upended and re reset again. Right. Well, how many years did you spend in the Air Force? I was in for a total of four years. I spent uh, the majority of that time uh, deployed in different locations um, because of the war, the Kosovo War and uh, the Iraq War that was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I spent um, some time over in Belgium with the NATO Special Operations Forces headquarters, and that was actually a really fun time. I got to meet, you know, 28 different nations' representatives and all of the different forces and the troops. And, you know, it's really interesting that there's still that camaraderie, even though there may be some language barriers. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to hear their experiences and how they do things uh, for operations training and responses in in their countries 
Um, so definitely it's an eye opener. I think that like when you're military, you've got to expand your horizons and think globally because, you know, whatever operation you're attached to or whether, you know, some people haven't deployed and they stay in the home front, um, you, you're still part of like this greater mission, you know? Um, yeah, so- I had actually had an experience like that in Turkey. There was a person there that, uh, um, was very friendly with us. He was, uh, he was definitely, he was assigned on the base and, uh, he taught me that, uh, you know, there's a lot of different, the, the, the Brits went through that base, the Germans went through that base. We're talking about Insulik Air Base. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually made it a point, this person to learn three things, three words, um, in every language of, uh, the people that were coming through. Hello, thank you. And where's the bathroom? And, uh, <laughs> that's what i have to learn every foreign country i go to <laughs> the right. most important things the most important things and so i kind of picked up that practice and uh, whenever i went out to a new country an allied country and i met the people there you know generally you would find somebody that spoke english that was usually not a problem but uh, i would make it a, an attempt to try to learn and that was a huge step in the in in the way of camaraderie uh, especially with uh, with foreign nationals um, I absolutely agree. And that was a practice that I had uh, everywhere I went. Well, to be honest, diplomacy isn't done just at the formal level. It's done at the informal level. And um, for sure, when we wear that uniform, we're representing our country, you know, and how we act and how we represent ourselves and conduct ourselves says a lot to outsiders um, that don't know us and aren't familiar with our country. So. It's true. You know, a lot of people understand the concept in doctrine. I keep going back to doctrine and that's what I do. But, um, in, you know, in doctrine, we have the vests on the dogs and mm-hmm. there's a mindset that shifts when the vest goes on the dog, they go to work mode. And the same thing kind of applies, you know, when you, it's definitely more palpable when you're outside of your country and you have your country's flag on your shoulder, the, the, the responsibility of good governance and not having, um, not having international incidents just because you were there and didn't understand something was mm-hmm. very much on everybody's mind. We didn't want to end up in those kinds of situations, especially when we're representing our country. So it's much more intense than what people realize. For sure. And there's definitely like the need for cultural sensitivity training, what to say, what not to say, even innuendos, something that you might not be saying, but your body language <laughs> says right. a lot. It's a bit intimidating, but let, tell me a little bit about your transition. So, you know, and I see this with, uh, with a lot of the veterans in the program. I went through it myself. There was a 10-year time frame where I just hated everybody and everything. Mm-hmm. I hated the VA. I hated, uh, you know, organizations that, that helped veterans. I hated the military. I hated anybody who, was, uh, who taught good or bad about the military. I just wanted to be done, uh, kind of go on isolation island as much as possible. Um, and I see that happen with a lot of the veterans in the program. They have a time frame where they have to disengage for a while and kind of work on creating the best reset that they can mm-hmm. after separation. But the things that I noticed the most uh, after my separation, definitely the first one was the, com- the lack of camaraderie. I think that camaraderie as a concept um, is something that doesn't really sit on the forefront of people's minds. They don't understand how it works. They don't, you know, it's hard for them to, to gain the discipline to be able to make camaraderie happen. Um, you know, personal feelings get in the way or personal objectives get in the way. And so it was something that was, you know, it it led to trust issues. It led to, uh, you know, me not really being able to talk to people because I didn't know what they were going to do with what I told them, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that lasted for quite a while 
where I was pretty closed in and uh, shut out and not really wanting help from anybody. These are all very typical PTSD symptoms now that I'm, you know, 20 years back looking at it. Yeah, for sure. It's it's ironic because um, I don't know if you've heard my story, but on on other episodes, I talk about my service and uh, my PTSD recovery journey. And I spent the first 15 years of my career as a licensed clinical social worker. And so you'd think, oh, she's she should have it all figured out, you know, and this was before I got in the Air Force. And so when I went through all of my combat exposure and my combat stress, I knew something was up but I didn't recognize that I had PTSD. It took for another vet to kind of take me aside and say, Hey, when's the last time you got checked out or, you know, what you're, what you're doing right now, this is hypervigilance. Um, and so putting a name to it and in a very loving way, in a very brotherly way, basically saying, I care about you, but you need help now. Like, if you put this off and you don't take care of yourself and you're too busy trying to save the world or trying to save everybody else, you're going to be the, the one that suffers. And it, it took that wake up call for me to realize, okay, I've got to stop, <laughs> stop, drop and roll. Like you got to stop and pause and take care of yourself. And um, one, be open to recognizing that you may need help to accepting the help and knowing what works and what doesn't work because what works for one person might not work for you, you know? Yeah. And there's, there's, there's another aspect to it too, where, you know, the veterans, they have loved ones, they're married or they have uh, partners or whatever, and they end up, um, holding back some of their mm -hmm. own emotions and feelings because they feel like it was so traumatizing to them at the time that to build that picture for that person would end up traumatizing that person, uh, also. And so they, they prefer to have them remain, um, ignorant of the idea or of the mental image that they have or of the experience, the emotion that they had, just so they don't have to um, put that on them and have them be concerned about it as well. I hear that a lot with some of our veterans. They've told it, they've told me some stories um, that, you know, they would hold off on telling some of their loved ones because of that reason. I couldn't talk to, well, my, my ex-spouse, my ex-husband was active duty. And so you'd think being dual military that I could talk to him, but I couldn't. I couldn't. I, I think not being able to talk about it meant I wasn't able to really process it or I was unable to process it because a part of your psyche is um, in self-protective mode. You're trying to survive, right? So in order to survive, you, it's so close to you that you can't really even formulate your thoughts around it. And so talking about it meant that it's alive and that you're putting something tangible into motion. Um, and so I never talked to him about what I experienced during deployment, what I saw, the things that haunted me. Like I, I never talked about it. And, and so I, I try to use that as an educational tool for people who don't understand veterans and may think one, all veterans have PTSD, which isn't true. But then how do you, how do you respond to a loved one when they're like, yeah, I've got friends that are vets that they don't come out and socialize or it's really hard to reach them. They're closed down. That's a very typical response. But you know, what I, what I try to say is like, you need to build that trust and you need to continuously be there and continuously try to reach out because that wall is real, like closing yourself off and going into survival mode. Uh, it, it doesn't help for sure. It, um, it kind of isolates you. Oh, absolutely. And you know, if there's anybody listening that, uh, 
um, wants to know more about it, I would just tell them, look, there's at least one person out there that understands your situation and what you've gone through. And mm -hmm. you don't have to let all the cats out of the bag in order to get the help that you need. What you really need is, uh, is to be able to reach out and find the resources that are available to you. And there's a lot of them through the VA. There's also a lot of independent ones like us um, that offer different kinds of things. But uh, um, definitely the best way to handle this for me is especially my, my particular flavor is hypervigilance PTSD. Mm -hmm. And um, my, the biggest thing that I did was, uh, was, was share that with other people, share that with people in the pack and say, Hey, you know, here's what I'm dealing with. Is this what you're dealing with? And then we find comparisons and, and, you know, identical reactions or different reactions. And, and in that, when you find somebody that has a different reaction, it's not as bad as the one that you have. It teaches you that you actually can react in a different way. Yeah. At what point did you recognize, all right, so I think I'm dealing with some residual issues, combat issues. At what point did you say to yourself, okay, I need to go get help? And then how did you go about it? Like, how did you know where to go for help and how to find the resources? Well, I found what I saw to be as an intermediary between the VA and, uh, and my issues. It was in the way of a vet center, mm -hmm. which is located out of Portland, uh, Gresham, actually. And um, they were really good about helping me kind of unpack, you know, the, the experiences and, and really understanding how they're affecting me. They also helped me understand um, the, the logical timeline and flow to, uh, to a, a reaction to triggers um, that happen. Because when you, when you react to trigger, you go into third person, you don't even see, yeah. you know, what, what your reaction is. And that in and of itself, being able to break down that process enabled me to pay, to put a decision switch in the moment so that I can decide whether or not I want to go red zone. And that in itself, just, you know, th that little mental gymnastics right there was enough to help me out. But I had been um, looking for some time uh, for, for something that would decrease my hypervigilance and uh, received a recommendation for a service dog. And I went down that route, route and that's how I ended up here today. Okay, so tell me about um, your own service dog, and then tell me how you founded Canine Cavalry. Well, Canine Cavalry is kind of uh, an offshoot, or was an offshoot. Uh, we're our own thing now, but you know, we started with uh, with the delivery of my service dog to myself. This is Ranger, and uh, Chocolate was, Lab. Yeah, it's a Chocolate Lab. Um, he was actually a, a six-month-old puppy when I received him. Um, as opposed to different, you know, there's there's most organizations that have service dogs and give service dogs. They do just that. They train the service dog, and then they give them to a veteran. Um, but what we're actually doing is we're finding veteran teams, the team, a veteran that already has a dog, and we're helping them with dog training. And what that's doing is it's putting them in a position where they become better leaders for their dogs. And that leadership quality is what pushes them past um, the, the trips that happen when they get triggered. Okay. Because, you know, a lot of different things can happen when you have a dog there. It's different. Um, say you have a flashback moment, your dog's going to be there to ground you in reality. If you have a seizure in public, your dog's mm -hmm. going to be there to uh, to help you out. You can see in this picture here, his backpack has a placard in it, and the placard tells uh, tells whoever's watching this veteran in the midst of his seizure what to do. For example, cover my head and don't call the ambulance because I don't want to wake up in the hospital. 
It's just stuff like that. Um, but, uh, you know, when the dog is with you and you're having these kinds of experiences, uh, they offer a, a, some sort of stability in many different ways. And our dogs are all unique in that fashion. We actually find out, you know, we work with the dogs specific to what the veterans needs are. Yeah. For those of you listening in, I know you're jealous because you can't see this photo reel, <laughs> but imagine in your head the cutest dogs on earth and they look happy doing their job. They're not like forced to work, right? I mean, how, you know, I think getting them and getting getting owners dogs where they already have that rapport is helpful, but is there a, an age limit where it's easier to train them under a certain time period or like what are your requirements well if you really wanted to see the dogs you could visit our website at caninecavalry.org that's spelled k-a-v-a-l-r-y with k and nine in front of it and um yeah we have a page there where we have all of our dogs uh on display and uh and loving it and they do love their jobs you know what what we go for in the training scenario is voluntary compliance we want the dog to want to help us Mm. It's one thing to get a dog to do a thing. It's another thing to get a dog to want to do a thing. And that's where the core of our program lies, is in making the veterans good enough leaders to inspire voluntary compliance from the dogs. And when they get that, that's what ends up putting their, uh, their, their training trajectory into a positive momentum because the team grows together under that scenario. Right. So you, you're not only training the dog, you have to train the owners so that they, they know how to command and t- work with the dog and reinforce that behavior, right? Oh, yeah. It's very much as a train-the-trainer program. Yeah. So, I mean, are there any um, are there any veterans that come to you that don't have a service dog and you already have one trained or you'll find a good fit for them? We have placed dogs in the past, um, but for the most part, uh, right now, what we're doing is just working with veterans that already have dogs. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll place a dog that needs a home with a veteran if we have, you know, somebody saying, hey, I want to donate a dog to the program. That'd be a one-off thing. Mm-hmm. But there's lots of veterans out there that already have a dog that, you know, can provide a service. Might not even be a service dog, but still can provide a service to the veteran's PTSD or depression or anxiety or something like that. And we want to work with those people because there's a lot of good dogs that don't that aren't service dog material, but they're good dogs. And at the end of the day, these are the dogs that the veterans chose. So they okay. already have that emotional connection with them. And that, as a matter of fact, that, that was one of the uh, one of the comments that one of the people in our group made. You know, I, I asked the people, uh, I asked the veterans in the program, uh, I, I told them I, I was having this interview and I said, if you had one thing if you were to choose it what would you want me to tell the people that were listening Mm -hmm. and uh, one of them came back and said that uh, he really enjoyed being able to to teach his dog how to be a better dog he enjoyed the process of training with them from the ground up and uh and you know having having a dog that he chose that basically hasn't had any service dog interaction at all um but he already had the bond Mm-hmm. And it was the bond that created the better trainer. And it's the better trainer that's creating the uh, the recovery for the PTSD. Got it. Is, so how many of these vets that go through your program, I mean, I, I can probably already guess the answer, but um, did they have any dogs that had some behavioral issues and then they went through the training and was like, oh my gosh, they're like night and day, completely different. Yes. 
uh, to mo- to the majority of them actually. Um, we've we've gotten dogs that are you know just puppies, and we're dealing with uh, you know uh, potty training and mm-hmm. uh, you know house manners and things like that. But we uh, from the older some of the older dogs, you know, we have a saying here: practice behavior is established behavior, and the more a dog is able to practice a behavior, the more likely they are to show it. And so a lot of times when the veterans come in with their dogs that they've had to for two or three years, um, you know, they'll have some kind of behaviors that are undesirable, like jumping up on people or, um, you know, like it chewing on things. These are the kind of behaviors that are easy to manage and, and to, uh, and to modify when you get into the program, you understand how to make that work. Um, but they're not things that would be generally in the way of serving the veteran. I think probably the biggest uh, the biggest step is in vet, in dogs that are uh, that are either dog aggressive, fear aggressive, or have situations where um, they are intolerant of a thing, whatever their thing is, a trigger, mm-hmm. and um, they're they're a little bit harder to work with because you know we, we try to we try to inoculate them to that thing so that they don't become scared of it anymore. They learn it could be you know something that's fun, but that takes time and. Mm-hmm. You know, when you put that in the context, the general context of service dog, an aggressive dog will never, ever, ever be named a service dog. And so, you know, that veteran, that poor veteran, you know, they have this dog that provides them safety, this dog that provides them love, this dog that provides them a reason to wake up in the morning. But because the dog doesn't like other dogs, they don't get they don't get the opportunity to turn that dog into a dog that can be of service. So what's the recommendation at that point, if that's the situation? Well, I've had dogs that uh, generally wanted to, to bite me every time I saw them, but I still work with that veteran online mm-hmm. and, um, you know, give them give them pointers on how they can correct the behavior. We do have a few of those night and day uh, scenarios that you mentioned where dogs have just completely turned around. Um, uh, one that comes to mind is Bella. You know, she's we've had we had one lesson in a store and with that one lesson that we've had so far. She's already, you know, cruising inside of Cabela's and stuff oh, wow. um, uh, with her veteran, which is something that's amazing because her veteran is pretty closed in the first place and doesn't like, you know, being in public at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, about the program itself. Like how, if somebody were to participate in the program, how long um, can they expect to be um, from beginning to end of when you decide, I guess every dog is different, but you know, on average, how long is the program? Yeah. So this is a, this is where we kind of diverge from, from other nonprofits and other programs like this. When you are a veteran and you join the pack in K9K, you're in for life. Here's what we're doing. We're creating a community of veterans that have dogs and use service dog training as a vehicle for providing, um, you know, for, for, for taking care of their PTSD or other symptoms, other wartime symptoms. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, but a lot of those resources are shared resources. This veteran brings that thing. This veteran brings this other thing. What I've done is I've started putting them into one forum. And, uh, so we have a chat, for example, I was talking to them earlier about this and we have 23 people in this chat. They're all veterans with dogs from all over the country. And, that, that in itself is providing the kind of camaraderie that we were talking about earlier that doesn't really exist in the nation. Mm-hmm. So when you ask, you know, what is the program like or how long are you in it? You're in it for life. I don't mm-hmm. push anybody out. We don't, we don't make anybody leave. We don't make anybody come into the program. 
you can participate as you as you need but we're operating as almost like a military unit we're a unit a, a group of veterans that uh, are all rising to the surface to help each other with our ptsd needs through our service dog training Nice. So, I, you know, not only are you providing a service model where you're training these dogs and training the veterans, the owners, but you're providing a community, it sounds like, for people to share their experiences, um, you know, talk to each other and kind of get that that camaraderie that we were missing from being in the service. And I, for sure, I didn't realize I was missing that until, what, eight years later. <laughs> yeah. So, um, what happens if you have folks that aren't in your area if they're on the opposite side of the country yeah we've gotten quite a few of those since uh since we went uh, digital and mm -hmm. uh, did our national outreach um those veterans end up uh, getting added to the program in a couple different ways first they get access to our uh, veteran chat where you can go in and make fun of the navy uh, they, also get, <laughs> they also get nicely timed to, <laughs> they also get us uh, get um, added to our Facebook group, which is kind of a repository of all of the information that we've collected over the last years pertaining to dog training, how to handle a service dog, what the rules are for FAA, all kinds of stuff in there, mm -hmm. um, which is which you could just dive in and, you know, learn something every day. Uh, we call it the dog house. And then um, they get the uh, basic training, which is covers our core principles in the program. Uh that helps them become a better leader. It discusses things like, you know, what to say, how to say it, when to say it. Um, a lot of times it's stuff that people kind of already perceive in their own dog training realm, um, but they haven't really put a framework to. Mm -hmm. And so that's, we, we give that to them. And then ongoing, they get, uh, they get, you know, behavior modification training. Like, for example, the, uh, the dog that jumps up on other people, we work with them with a training plan, you know, do this, this many times a day, come on zoom. We're going to talk about it here. Let me show you how to do it with my dog. And so it, it suffices that, you know, I can learn more about watching a dog for 10 seconds than I can from hearing somebody talk about their dog for 10 minutes. For sure. And so zoom really makes the difference there. And uh, having that, having that access makes it real easy for us to bring those veterans in. Cause remember, they're not just in it for the dog training. They're also in it for the camaraderie. It's right. become the most popular part of it. And the last thing I'll say uh, about what they get is uh, is the gear kit. Mm -hmm. um, when veterans join the program, we do measurements and we put together a custom gear kit that's specific for the veteran that takes into account whatever their diagnosis is, whatever their uh, their troubles are, whatever their dog's troubles are. You know, we can put we can use um, different kinds of uh, leashes or different kinds of pens or different you know stuff stuff to make the dog a better you know, better at the voluntary compliance aspect. Mm -hmm. And uh, we send that gear out to them directly. So, so, so when do, do veterans pay for the services or do you have, do you raise funding? Cause I know you're a nonprofit app. How does your business model work? So the veterans don't pay a dime mm -hmm. and they never will. And our program is, uh, is funded on the back end by um, a similar and also part of it pack. It's the, the supporter pack. Now, the supporter pack is a, has a large list of industry professionals from um, all over the, the area here, uh, mostly uh, Oregon and Washington. And they, uh, I, I met a lot of them through BNI, which is a networking group. And uh, a lot of them are other nonprofits. We do have a couple 
main uh, main donors like Walmart's donated. We have a program uh, through Colorado Motorsport, who is a race car. Uh, they, they race mm-hmm. uh, a couple of their cars are going to be at Pikes Peak here pretty soon. And uh, they're one of our main sponsors, which is pretty cool because we love we love rally cars. And the, it's kind of fun to train around them, too. I can put my dog next to a car that's racing its engine for 10 minutes and he just wouldn't even <laughs> flinch. <laughs> but um, we do have the private donors on the back and that helped fund this this project. And, you know, it comes in the way of uh, grants as well. We're working on getting some grants and we're still pretty young, though. We're, we're a young organization. Um, but we've managed our overhead in a way that uh, we don't have a lot of money to spend. Mm-hmm. We can allocate our resources directly to the veterans. That's awesome. And tell me a little bit about um, lessons learned as a founder. You know, I'm sure all of us as as founders, we learn things along the way. What would you tell your younger self that you know now? What would I tell my younger self? <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, younger self, follow your heart. In the end, I think we all know what the difference is between right and wrong. But I think my version of right or wrong comes with serving others. It comes with um, giving back for the things that you received that uh, that you needed at the last minute and it, and it arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it means, you know, as, as long as you keep this is my advice. As long as you keep your eye on the mission and your mission is based in honor, then you're doing the right thing and you should never stop. Those are awesome words. So tell me, um, looking forward with uh, Canine Cavalry, what what do you foresee in the future in the next five to 10 years? In the next five to 10 years, we'd love to grow. We'd love to have at least uh, three times the amount of veterans that we have here so we, have, we, can, start, uh, we can start organizing them um, regionally and getting more trainers in and getting more hands-on for the people that aren't in our specific location over here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I would love to work with other organizations that, uh, that are into uh, serving veterans that understand the, the, uh, the desire and the requirement for camaraderie, which is still a thing. Did you know that when people, when, when veterans were serving from Vietnam and they came back, their PTSD was called shell shock and they were told oh, yeah. to get over it. You know, you know, this is the kind of thing that, that you're trained just to kind of keep inside of you. The camaraderie is the thing that's going to get those things out of you. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's, it, it's kind of weird to me that we don't have these kinds of uh, interactions on a daily, like it's not norm, but um, I'm trying to make it the norm. I'm trying to serve our community as much as I possibly can. And the people in our organization, the veterans, they serve just as hard. You know, we've had situations where the power went out and it was 20 degrees outside. We were able to dispatch a generator to one of the veterans so that they didn't have to freeze at night. Um, another one, his, his wife fell down, went to the hospital, can't, can't cook. We sent over, you know, three dozen eggs and two huge bags of strawberries. Um, we nice. look out after each other. Yeah. And that's that's the biggest part of the camaraderie is responding to a need that somebody didn't ask for. Um, that's part of it, too. That's great. I mean, that's I love doing what I do now with the podcast as well as um, on Operation Code because you meet people from all service service branches from all of the war eras and everybody has a unique story, but there's definitely the shared experience, you know. And what I love to see are people that are complete strangers just serve each other 
and step up. That blows me away every single time. Um, where can people find you? Well, as I mentioned before, uh, website is uh, k9cavalry.org. It's spelled K-9-K-A-V-A-L-R-Y. Uh, it's, not the, it's not Calvary like some people uh, spell it. Mm-hmm. And uh, our phone number is 503-703-5445. My name is Dan. I'm the uh, owner and the founder of the program. And um, we're also on Facebook at K9Cav and on Instagram at K9Cavalry. Awesome. I get to fawn over doggy pictures. Well, I've do got. I don't have a dog. I have a cat. She's a ten-month-old Russian blue who's getting into her adolescent stage and uh, gets into tons of shenanigans like me. So I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Um, but one of these days, I'll have to get a dog of my own. Well, look, and- if you're a veteran out there with a the cat that wears a tack vest, you are <laughs> definitely in on the program. I can't give you training for the cat. I don't train cats, but you're in on the program if you have that cat. Yeah, I've got a, I've got an Instagram for her too. It's Chairman the Russian Cat. <laughs> oh, I'm so there. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a lot of like fun photos. But thanks for joining. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Dan. Um, join us next next week, every Friday at one p.m. Pacific. Listen, learn, and get shit done. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. Ten percent of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.